Hey everybody, the November 2020 Roundup was brought to you by Fun Again Games. And as always folks, November was a very exciting month in the world of board games because at the end of the year, that's when all the really cool stuff starts coming out. The stuff that was targeted for Essen Spiel, all the best of the best Euros. Some of them I got last month, some more I've gotten this month. There's still a few I'm hoping to pick up for November to December. Uh, maybe I'll be covering some of them. If you want to know, you can hit that eye in the top right corner screen to go check out the coming soon for what I'll be filming in the next few weeks. I don't even know right now because it's actually, I haven't even run my, ooh, I have to run my uh, voting for that. Oh, anyway, that's neither here nor there. I'm running out of time. Time is the fire in which we burn and I'm going to be spending a lot of time today talking to you about games because I've got 26 games and expansions that Jen and I played over the month of November and if you figure on average I'm going to give two to three minutes per, well, we're going to be here for a while, folks. So get comfortable. And uh, before I get going, uh, this is a reminder, last month I started the new overall change to the format, which people really seem to like, that first I talk about expansions and reprints and 2.0 type stuff. Uh, I, I do that as a mini countdown and then I do the full countdown for all the completely new games that Jen and I played. Right. Okay. You got it? Then... <clears throat> Without any further ado, let's jump over to PowerPoint for um, my uh, my least favorite new expansion. Because remember, I'm doing the expansions first. What is it? It is Seven Wonders Armada. And this is actually kind of heartbreaking because it's excellent. I've actually had this for, I guess, a couple of years now. But I've uh, never really gotten it to the table because what I'd read in the rule books is there's no official variant for two-player gaming. Which the original Seven Wonders supported two-player gaming. And every expansion up to, but not including Armada, included two-player rules. But then Armada said, nope, we're for three players minimum. Don't even bother. Well, um, I decided to go on ahead and bother, and surprise, this works great with the official Free City two-player variant. I have no idea why the designers and publishers decided, yeah, we're not even going to bother. We don't want you playing this two-player because Jen and I had a fantastic time. I was a little uncomfortable with it because I could have seen how, depending on how they wanted to adjust this for two players, maybe they'd make some changes here or there. So pretty much you have to house rule this thing. But uh, with that in mind, we did really enjoy it. And what is the new concept behind Armada? It's the idea that in Seven Wonders, if you play a military uh, red card or a science green card, a civic blue card, or a what was it a, a commerce yellow card, you will move forward on a yellow, blue, red, or green track. And if you can afford to pay, you can get all kinds of bonuses and uh, that add a whole extra new level of complexity to the game. That was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed. If you focus on science, that means you're also doing exploration which introduces a whole new kind of card. If you focus on military, that means you're also building up a naval uh, uh, a navy in addition to the army you normally use. And unlike the army, in regular Seven Wonders, only affects the player to the left and the right, the navy affects all players. And like the army conflict, it's pretty Care Bear friendly. It's just about transferal of points, depending on who has the strongest navy. Same way who's got the strongest army. This all works wonderfully, and it worked great with the official Free City 2 player rules. Uh, the only reason this came in at the bottom of my list, the lowest rated, is because officially you're not supposed to play it as two players. And so, as we were playing, I was wondering, well, geez, uh, how should the Free City handle this particular thing? And how should it handle that? If there had been some official guidance, this probably would have been my number one expansion of the month. But the fact that I had to just 
play it by ear, and hope it was going to work out, and like I said, it mostly did, puts um, Seven Wonders Armada at the bottom of the list, number eight, which is kind of a bummer. I was actually thinking about cutting something from this list and talking about it next month, so it would have been my number seven, but nope, it's my number eight, Seven Wonders Armada. Then we move on to number seven, Splendor Marvel. <clears throat> Which, uh, I didn't break down in my other list as a completely new game, because this is 100... No, this is 99.9% Splendor. They've just replaced the, uh, the gem mines and the rich nobles with... Marvel superheroes and villains and S.H.I.E.L.D. and uh, the the Infinity Gauntlet. And uh, if you like Splendor, I don't see... And you like Marvel superheroes, I can see no reason you would not want to seek this out. If you don't like Splendor or you don't like Marvel superheroes, this is not going to make you a fan of either of them. And, you know, Jen and I, we thought Splendor was... A nice little game, a simple little engine builder, but it never really captured our attention because it was so abstract. I thought, oh, maybe bringing one of my favorite things in the universe, Marvel superheroes in, will be what puts it over the top. But it did not. My insane, intense love for Marvel comics did not make me suddenly a fan of Splendor. Now, I should point out, it is interesting. I said 99.9. There is a, There are a couple of super tiny minor changes. The biggest one being that, um, unlike regular Splendor, to be able to win, you have to get... Um, uh, you know, uh, at least one of every one of the colors, because you're trying the the colors represent the six infinity gems to make in the infinity gauntlet and all that, or the infinity stone. Sorry, comic books are gems, and um, they. That in the original Splendor, you could completely ignore certain colors and really kind of focus like a laser. Now, to be able to win, they force you to broaden out. And I've seen some people complain that they don't like that. Honestly, I think it makes the game a little bit better because the game can be very luck swingy for people who really focus on just like a super tight collection of uh, of you know like one or two colors. Uh, that could really you could get crazy lucky and everything goes your way, or it could blow up in your face and you get nothing. And honestly, I suspect the developer said. Yeah, we really wish people would play the way we intended, where there's a broader scope and everybody's trying to shoot for everything. Um, so you, you get uh, you know a richer, more exciting, you know, and dynamic expanding world. I assume they made this choice because it makes for an overall stronger, more well-balanced game. That's certainly what it felt like to me, but I am in no way, shape, or form a Splendor expert because, like I said, Jen and I are not really Splendor um, aficionados. And Splendor Marvel, while it's still a solid little gateway engine builder, still failed to capture our imagination. That's why it's at number seven. Then we move on to number six, Star Wars Unlock, which is the latest, uh, you know, three-pack of escape room in your home driven by a digital app on your phone series called Unlock. And I have to admit, of uh, gosh, must be almost a year ago now. I think Jen and I kind of swore off escape rooms. We've kind of gotten burnt out. I mean, it's not that there aren't new ones coming out all the time, and there's really clever things. Jen and I, we were just kind of sick and tired of trying to solve all the puzzles and, and race against time. We, we, we just had enough. I had to come back, though, because the idea of a themed one was very, very attractive. Well, personally, I would have much rather this had been Star Trek Unlock instead of Star Wars Unlock. But hey, I love Star Wars, too, and I thought this would be fun. Three adventures, and the biggest surprising thing about this was... Oh my gosh, two of the three adventures were so incredibly easy. They were just barely above the tutorial in terms of depth and complexity. And now I get that. I think that's the right choice because, you know, they're assuming they're going to bring in a lot of first-timers who just bought this not for the Escape Room Unlock stuff, but for the Star Wars stuff. So it makes sense. They made really, really easy ones. Uh, for me and Jen, 
Uh, we liked them. It was kind of cool to explore different facets of the Star Wars universe. In one, you're a rebel. In one, you're a smuggler. And in one, you're an officer in the Empire. And um, so that was cool. And uh, you know, and they were well-designed, like always. Two of them, we thought, were too easy for us to really enjoy them. The puzzles... I mean, I mean, we, I mean, I mean, if you look at the screenshot, uh, we got a five star. I think our first ever five star. We did so well. Um, but it's interesting. The third mission is supposedly one notch above in difficulty level, and for the most part, it was pretty straightforward. But there was one mistake, one thing we overlooked, one leap of logic you had to make that did not seem to be very intuitive to us at all. We kind of understood. We understand what we have to do here. We just don't know how to do it. And unfortunately, um, if we were normally when you're stuck in a Lock, you say, okay, fine, just give me the hint, I don't care. But this hint, there was no hint available for this one because it wasn't based on a card, but it was based on another asset that you couldn't type hints in for. So we got stuck on that frustratingly for a long time. And after we eventually broke down and looked up the answer, we couldn't use the hint system, so we just had to. The game actually comes with a complete breakdown of uh, walkthroughs for all of them, which was a cool idea, actually. It's a good thing because we had to use it to get past it. We're like, ah! Of course, a symbol hint would have done this for us. Why were there no hints for this? Because it had to do, again, with something that wasn't on a card. And we were so kind of ticked off by that, the rest of Adventure kind of, let's just go through the motions. We don't even care now because we're so frustrated because we got stuck so long because the game didn't give us the opportunity to use hints. So... It was a mixed bag. For the most part, too easy. And then th that third one was fairly easy as well, except for that one unintuitive thing where we couldn't get hints for. So on the whole, this has not reinvigorated our love of escape rooms at home. We enjoyed it. It was very, very cool. It's nice to have not real John's Williams music, but some Star wars E type music and sound effects coming through your phone. So it was nice. Uh... I don't necessarily have a bad feeling about this, but uh, it basically comes in this month at number six, Star Wars Unlock. Then we go on to number five, Time Stories Revolutions, A Midsummer's Night. Now, this was a big one for me to play because Jen and I, we really enjoyed the uh, first season of Time Stories, which was the White Cycle. And um, <clears throat> I know some people were really kind of disappointed, but for the, we, we saw it all the way through. There was one mission Jen couldn't play at all, but I played all of them and we really enjoyed them. And I was looking forward to the revolution, the season two, where they totally radically changed a lot of the rules, try to address complaints that players had, um, you know, really common issues that people complained about for the first series. And they brought out the blue. Now, the first one, the Hadel Project, we played, but I wasn't really sure how well that represented the new Time Story system because it was originally a mission designed for the original gameplay, and it kind of felt like it was crowbarred in. So, A Midsummer Night, which is a more fantastical game set in um, you know the the famous Shakespearean play, uh, it seemed like that was going to be a better one because we'd really be able to see the new systems at work. And I still think, on the whole, it is a more well, it's certainly a more user-friendly system now. Um, because the biggest change that was made with Time Storage Revolution is, you know, it's no longer Groundhog Day. Now you play through the entire adventure in one take. You don't go so far, run out of time, and then have to go back to the future, and then jump back in, and then use your knowledge to be able to avoid dead ends and stuff like that. Um, and I know a lot of people love that. I mentioned this in Hadel, and I'll mention it here. We missed desperately, desperately, desperately missed the time story. What was time stories to us is the uh, the Groundhog Day. And it's 
It's still good. I mean, this these games have always effectively been the board game equivalent of old classic point-and-click adventures from like LucasArts, like Full Throttle um, or Day of the Tentacle or you know the King's Quest series from Sierra Games. Uh, these have always been board game versions of that, and now they're even more so because they've lost the time travel element. And you just play through. And in fact, the interesting thing about Midsummer Night is you really can't fail anymore. There is no threat of failure. It's just the longer you take, the worse your score is going to be. But you will eventually, if nothing else, you can you can muscle your way through any challenge and get through to the end. You still want to get a better score because there's this whole metagame with the experiences module, which I've done a run-through for. But okay, so long story short. We enjoyed Midsummer Night. We had a good time. It's a very lighthearted romp. It does some very clever and imaginative things using the fantastical setting put into what is typically a more science fiction thing. Because how are we in this magical world? It's interesting. Well, I don't want to spoil anything, but there were some really cool twists. And the true heart of time stories has always been that I have my adventures, you have yours, and we have to tell stories to each other. And that's still here. That still works well. But... This is my second of the Revolution series, and I felt it a little bit. I felt it even more now. I miss the Groundhog Day stuff. So I'm going to keep going, but I don't have as much excitement and enthusiasm for Time Stories as I used to, because a big part of the beating heart of the game is gone um, with the Revolution series. Although, again, for a lot of people, that's going to make the game much, much, much better. But anyway, it's my number five of the month, Time Stories Revolution, A Midsummer Night. Then we got number four. Fields of Green Grand Fair. All right, this is uh, the first big box or small box expansion for Fields of Green, which is a great card drafting game that uh, basically took 100% the gameplay of Among the Stars and rethemed it. Instead of being building a space station in outer space, we are building a uh, 50s era Americana farm. You know, trying to raise crops and livestock, build buildings, and score lots of points drafting cards and then laying them out. And it's important how you put cards adjacent to other cards and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, Field of Green is fantastic. The Grand Fair adds a bunch of really cool stuff that we really liked. Um, And some things we didn't. Uh, The main thing is, every time you play, you're going to set up three boards that represent different attractions at the county fair. And they all have radically different gameplay-changing effects that will kind of inform you and direct you to maybe... Normally, oh, I I really want to build a water tower right now, but now is not a good time to build a water tower because of the sack race going on. And so, you have this extra level of complexity to consider with every single card you play. And if you can play well based on the opportunities that the that the fairgrounds create for you, it can really push you. It felt like we did a much bigger game. We got a lot more done because we were leveraging the, the, the fairgrounds. Now, my problem with it is, I think the game comes with eight of these fairground tiles. A lot of them I really like a lot. Some of them are maybe a little bit too prescribed and like, okay, this really limits you and forces you to play a certain way and takes away some of your flexibility and freedom. And so that didn't kind of sit with us as well. Uh, But you know what? Like I said, there's eight. If a couple of them really aren't great, there's still six that are very cool. Plus, that aside, it added a bunch... A bunch of new cards that do really cool things. It adds another system where, you know, players are trying to compete on certain metrics, so... 
There's other stuff going on. And overall, Fields of Green is great. I would say on the whole, Grand Fair definitely improves. There were a couple of things that didn't quite sit with us, but there's so much content with this new one that I think it's going to be totally fine anyway. And if you have Field of Green and love Fields of Green like we do, Grand Fair is definitely worth checking out. Okay, then we go on to number three, Boomerang Europe. Now, I did a run-through for Boomerang, which was a very cool, fast-playing card drafting game from designer Scott Alms a couple of years ago. The original Boomerang was set in Australia, and it's all about players trying to plan the perfect four-week vacation in Australia. Uh, by, you know, having a hand of cards, picking one, and then handing the rest to your neighbor, uh, playing them out to try to focus on the right food you eat, the, the, the locations to visit, all that kind of stuff. Um, apparently... People liked Boomerang enough to, that it got two spin-offs. The original, if you consider it Boomerang Australia, there's now Boomerang Europe and Boomerang USA. And the publisher sent me Europe. They did not send me USA, which is kind of weird. They, nor did they send me the new updated uh, Australia, but that's okay. I have the original. So what I was able to do was compare and contrast Boomerang Europe and Boomerang Australia. And if you want, you can go watch my run-through of Boomerang to get the basic idea. Europe is great. It uh, changes a couple of, of the score the way you score the game at the end, um, to give it a different feel. But the core drafting gameplay is still the same. And really, the main attraction here is instead of running around through all these regions of Australia, we're running around through all the countries of Europe. And that was, for us, it was great. That's why I was really excited, because we're kind of missing Europe after having lived in it uh, for over a decade. And uh, now we live in the States. It was kind of nice to go and have a little a boomerang tour. Um... I think I like the scoring rules of the original Boomerang better. They create more tension. It was cool. The Europe uh, scoring rules are more interactive. You care a lot more about what your opponent is doing um, because it creates an extra race between you. But I, I like the, the more hardcore, tension, difficult, challenging original Boomerang. I know there's different rules for the Boomerang USA, but I can't speak to those because they didn't send me a copy of that. My biggest problem with Boomerang Europe is, and this is surprising, it's really quite shocking... There was something like a half a dozen countries completely mislabeled in this. Like, um, they say Malta is Greece, and Greece is Portugal, and Portugal is Cyprus, and Cyprus is Turkey. Uh, it wasn't exactly those, but I, I remember Malta was specifically wrong. And I think, I, I mean, I remember Greece was wrong as well. And maybe it was Turkey wrong? I don't remember for sure. But it's like, it's like radically wrong. And it doesn't change gameplay at all. You just have to say, oh, well, yeah, um, Malta should be letter D, but it's letter A. It functionally doesn't change anything. But it was kind of disappointing to see they made such big mistakes on those. Now, as I understand it, the publisher, you can contact them, and they will send you out an updated version of the board that you can print out and laminate yourself to fix the problem. Um, I'm not going to do that. I just really is kind of bummed. Uh, as it stands right now, like I said, for us, we slightly preferred the less interactive, more tension-filled Australia scoring, and that plus just the big boo-boo on... Um, and this has actually gotten a reprint now, because it got widely distributed by another publisher, Matigo, I think, and they didn't fix it for that either. The, the original Kickstarter, or and that's just kind of a bummer. Like I said, it doesn't hurt gameplay at all, and Boomerang is a fantastic game. And if you would rather um, you know travel around Europe, and you would like more interactive scoring, where you really are much more directly competing with other players, Boomerang Europe is probably the better one to go with. Just you gotta know, they messed up a bunch of countries. Oh! Alrighty, but anyway... 
That was my number three for the expansion. This is obviously a spin-off. It's still Boomerang, just set in a different environment. Let's move on now to number two on the expansion's uh, reprint spin-offs. On tour, Europe. Yes, we definitely got to spend some time in Europe in the month of November, which was very nice. Uh, this is another spin-off. This is exactly the same gameplay as uh, the original on tour, which, uh, gosh, didn't I put it in my top 10 must-have games of all time when I did that list a few months ago? I think I did. On tour is one of the best rolling rights on the market by far. In the original on tour, you were um, trying to roll dice and use them bingo style. Everybody makes as access to the same dice to plan out the best tour dates for your rock band as they're traveling across the continental United States. Now, with the Europe um, spinoff, it's your, uh, you know, trying to find your way through Europe. And as far as I know, they did not mess up any country names in this one. Hooray! That's very, very good. Um, but still, it's on tour. Here's the thing that I really appreciate, though, because apparently on tour, the original one that was on Kickstarter, well, it came in a gigantic box, which really kind of hurt the game's um, portability, because this is a great game to play on the go when you are on tour, wherever you're uh, out and about, because as dry erase boards, you can actually play this sitting in a car and stuff like that, but the box was needlessly ginormous. So, basically, on tour, it went, when it went on Kickstarter again, this Europe expansion, I think, was kind of built in. I don't know if it's sold separately or if it's just part of the uh, the reprint of On Tour. But the important thing is, it comes in a decent sized small box. It's much more travel friendly, and it's still the same great gameplay. But now you can tour Europe instead of the U.S. In my number two of the month, On Tour Europe. But then my number one expansion spinoff reprint was Marvel Champions Ant Man. Marvel Champions once again makes it back to the top of my expansions must play game. In um, what is, I'm not going to say he's my favorite hero, but he might be my favorite hero. I mean, he's not my favorite hero. Uh, that'd be Spider-Man, of course. But, uh, I mean, I like Ant-Man. Who doesn't like Ant-Man? I mean, the movies were delightful. But here's the thing that makes Ant-Man, as a playable hero, stand out from all the others. He has three forms instead of two. All the other heroes have their day-to-day -day alter ego, Peter Parker, or um, you know, during play, you can flip the card to put on your Spider-Man costume, and then you become Spider-Man. And when you're Spider-Man, or Thor, or Captain Marvel, or Black Widow, or Ms. Marvel, or, or whoever, um, or She-Hulk, you are fighting the bad guys trying to defeat them before they could defeat their nefarious schemes, or you're thwarting their progress. Right. But, every once in a while, you will take off the super suit, put back on your street clothes, and for almost all the heroes, the only real reason you do that is to heal, because you take a lot of damage. And while you're in your street clothes, that gives the bad guy a chance to scheme and plot. And I've always thought this dichotomy, this switch, is by far the most important thing about Marvel Champions that makes it so special. And repeatedly, get, uh, expansion after expansion, it feels like the publishers are getting less and less and less interested in that dichotomy. Um, you know, Hawkeye, you know, it's getting more and more where you never, there, there's no reason to change back to your alter ego because there's no special cards in the de in your character deck that take advantage of your day-to-day -day life. Ms. Marvel and She-Hulk were my two favorite characters because they could do the most out of costume. So they really push the unique selling of the USP of Marvel Champions above all else. Ant-Man comes along and takes it to a whole new level because you have three forms. You've got your day-to-day -day street clothes, Scott Lang, or you can shrink down to Ant-Man, or you can grow up, you know, supersized to Giant-Man. And the thing that's so important about this is everybody loves this. 
Everybody sees how cool it is. And the reason it's cool is because it really leverages the core element of what makes Marvel Champions special. Changing your persona. And so I can only hope and pray that the publishers recognize just how much fun it is to have reasons to change Persona, and in design for future heroes, they make the street clothes have more reasons to want to change. Because it just feels like they're getting to the point where, yeah, you just never ever ever want to change the street clothes. Ant-Man, you don't want to change to Scott Lang either, but you do find yourself switching back and forth a lot. And there's no reason, um, you know, these characters could not have things they can do in their regular lives that can help them move forward other than just heal. And I want to see that. And I hope Scott Lang and the Ant-Man expansion um, proves that they can take this in a new direction. Fingers crossed is my number one expansion for the month, Marvel Champions, <clears throat> Ant-Man. Now, let's move on to the actual new games we've got, starting with number 18, Dune Imperium. And folks, I, 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 don't be misled. Based solely on the strength of the design of this deck builder, worker placement, area control game, this could have easily been my number one game of the month. And easily in my top ten games of the year because the design here is absolutely brilliant. It fuses those three core ideas. Building up a deck, using the cards in your deck to drive your worker placement, and the worker placement is a means to engage in area control skirmish battles between players for control of Dune, Arrakis, Desert Planet. And all of these things come together beautifully. Uh, you know, There's tons of variety in the different cards. All, every card is a multi-use card. You can use them as part of your worker placement, or you can use them to harvest resources that you can use to do deck building. It's all very sharp. I'm very impressed. Why is it coming at the bottom of my list? Our least favorite game of the month? It's because of that third pillar of this game. It's area control. And this is a particularly nasty cutthroat game. Because at the end of every round, after everybody's played through their entire hand, there is going to be a contest to see who got big, big rewards. And, you know, in a, uh, you know, no matter what, the way the game is set up, if everybody tries to compete, somebody walks away with nothing. And it almost, at that point, becomes the equivalent of a blind bid auction that if I actually committed troops to try to win in the, the skirmish that was happening in this particular round, and I come in last place, I get nothing, and I lose all those troops. And that makes the game really, really nasty. Now, it ups the stakes. It's super appropriate to Dune, because Dune is a nasty, nasty place. It's very thematically appropriate. But if this game had come with some kind of Care Bear rules, something like, um, hey, you know what? If, if I get nothing, I get my troops back, or I get half my troops back, or, or there's some kind of consolation prize, because it was so often the case that, okay, this is a, the reward this round. It's very important. I can see Jen's going for it, and she thinks she's got it, but then at the last minute, I make a couple moves, and I say, oh, sorry, honey. You didn't get it. You didn't come in second, so you didn't get the runner-up prize. You came in third, because there's a dummy player, which is brilliantly uh, implemented, by the way. I don't see how anybody who complains about dummy players would complain about this. It's so smartly done. But anyway, sorry, honey. You came in last. You get nothing. You lost everything. And it's my fault. I strategized to make that happen. I should be crowing from the rooftops. But it just made me curl up and die inside every time I ruined Jen like that. This is a game that is super interactive. And there are tons of mind games that go into... Because there's bluffing and holding cards back and surprising people at the right time. So again... Hugely thematically appropriate to the subject matter. 
really sharp, well-designed game. One I don't think I would ever want to play again. Um, but if I liked crushing my enemies and seeing them driven before me, this probably would have been my number one game of the month. So, it's unfortunately, I don't like that as much as I loved everything else about this game. So, Dune Imperium is my number 18 of the month. Then we move on to number 17, which is the Transcontinental. Now, this was a paid Kickstarter preview, and the Kickstarter is still live right now for another week or two, I think. So, uh, this is interesting. You can go check out and learn more. But, like I said, it was a paid Kickstarter preview, so take that into account with my subjective opinions. I think this is a brilliant worker placement game. One of the most clever and fresh new takes on worker placement I have seen in years. Uh, every worker you place down activates multiple... Um, multiple worker placement spots. And the way the board is laid out, uh, the board is somewhat randomized, so you get different combinations of things. So every worker you put down, you are trying to create a... Uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, I can't think of the word. You're, 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 you're trying to create little miniature combos between multiple tiles that one could feed another one or something like that. But the brilliant thing about this game is the worker placement is sort of Kayla style. Everybody places all their workers and the worker placement board gets bigger and bigger as the transcontinental railroad heads west and more worker placement spots open up. But um, everybody puts their worker placements down and then they all get resolved going from east to west. And so, um, not only do you need to pick the right spots to make the right combos and maybe freeze other players out who want to get those spots as well, um, but you have to remember that those um, workers are going to activate in a specific set order, very much like Kalis. But then here's where the game gets bonkers brilliant. Um, all the workers can get activated going from east to west, from right to left. And then, once they make it all the way to the left, the um, everybody engages in an auction to potentially expand the worker placement. So, we get further and further west because we're developing the, um, the uh, transcontinental. Then... All the workers can get activated going from west to east. So you can have this double where, where some of your workers activate on the first pass, but then you save some of the other workers to activate on the second pass. And that is so brilliant. It's kind of, it has a very slight feel sort of to the uh, seasonal thing of viticulture, but so radically different. That combined with the brilliant little mini combos of all these different tiles that are laid out, plus a really brilliant um, take on pick up and deliver, um, what do you call it, Age of Steam style pick up and deliver, where everybody shares a common train that carries our goods around that we need to move to build buildings and develop cities and all kinds of stuff. This game is off the chain. It uh, is got so many cool, brilliant ideas. So why did it come in at number 17, my second lowest rated? It's the same thing as Dune Imperium. A lot of everything you're doing um, drives a fundamental area control game. And like Dune Imperium, if both you and I really commit to trying to get um, dominance over a particular um, worker placement spot that we're trying to develop, so it'll upgrade and become a better worker placement spot. Whoever wins that battle gets huge benefits, and whoever loses that battle gets nothing. Nothing. And, um, yeah, it was, again, just a little bit... I would have loved to see a softer version of this where there were more um, consolation prizes for the players who lost. Instead of, oh, the consolation prizes, do better next time. Uh, and uh, the like Dune Imperium, the design is brilliant, but you've got to go in knowing that this can be a fairly cutthroat area control game in addition to everything else that's going on. So that's why it came in at number 17, the Transcontinental. Brilliant design. Award-winning design. If you want to know more about that, again, go watch my run-through. But anyway, let's move on then to number 16. A double. A two and one. 
fresco card and dice game. And here's the odd thing about this. In one box, uh, you get two completely different games, completely different components, both of them themed after Fresco, which is one of Jensen, my favorite games of all time, uh, where we're trying to, uh, you know, we're Renaissance era painters trying to create a beautiful Fresco, um, you know, for the, for the bishop in a, in a church. Now, both of these games have the same theme, but the two games that come in this one box are radically different. They're both fast-playing little filler games, very light gateway-style games. And, um, I'll cut you to the chase, the reason it's so low is because they're both very, very lightweight games. And Fresco, when you play with all the modules, is a very, very heavyweight game. And I thought both games were clever, but they're both really lightweight. You know, they're... They're like Ticket to Ride level weight. And that's just a little bit lighter than what we're looking for. But let's talk about the two games. The card game is a, uh, it's a, it's a, a hand management game where every round you're drawing cards uh, that represent the different paints. And you're try- you have public goals of what types of paints you have to put together to complete sections of the frescoes. So you're, you're, you're drawing blind, um, or uh, you know, not, not always blind, but you're often you know, you're taking gambles as to what you're drawing to try to get the right combinations of paints to complete objectives and score points. And it works really well. Uh, it's nice. It's fast playing. Uh, and again, there's nothing bad I have to say about. It. Oh, and you earn certain powers when you complete certain goals that will you know, give you more special abilities and all that. It was nice, fun, fast. I could totally see this being a nice little gateway style card game. Um, but again, too light for us. The dice game, I actually I kind of liked a little bit more. It's equally lightweight, but in this one, uh, it's a Yahtzee-style game where there's one player who's actually rolling, setting aside, re-rolling, setting aside, re-rolling, although with some twists. There's some definitely interesting Yahtzee twists to the Yahtzee formula here. But we're trying to roll, um, but before we start rolling, we declare, I'm going to paint this section of the fresco, um, which means I need my dice have to come up with a combined... Uh, I forget, a 12 or 13, right? And if I get a higher than that, I fail at my target. I still get to do something, but I don't end up doing what I targeted. So I'm rolling trying to hit those. So I make my public declaration. This is what I'm trying to do. If I fail, I'll get to do other things. But if I succeed, I'll get a nice bonus out of it. Before I start rolling, everybody else, all the other players, take bets as to whether they think the player is going to hit their target or um, miss their target and go high and go low and all that stuff. And that's really sharp. That's really neat and very fun. And I think my only problem with this is, as a two-player game, there you, you lose some of the excitement and the enthusiasm. If I'm rolling and everybody's... If there are three other players who have all bet, some have bet that I'm going to hit it, some have bet I'm going to go high or whatever, and everybody's cheering or jeering as I'm trying to hit and make some interesting strategic choices about which dice I set aside because they can be modified with other dice. It's a sharp little game, fun, fast playing. But at, at, and of the two, I think the cleverer, but really wants more than two players to really be at full effect. Um, I, I could imagine watching Jen roll. If there was somebody else and I bet one way and somebody else bet the other way, it would have been very, very, uh, uh, you know, really escalate the fun factor. Um, so anyway, that was my number 16, the Fresco card and dice game. Then we go on to number 15, Monster Expedition. Now, this is the latest game. Uh, from one design superstar, one of my new favorite designers of all time, Alexander Pfister. And over the last few years, I've really fallen in love with him because of his big, heavy, um, you know, Euro-crunchy games like Maracaibo and Hong Kong Blackout and Great Western Trail. Um, But he's done other lighter games uh, as well. But this is... 
super lightweight. This is a sequel to Monster... Monster Carnival. Carnival Monsters. Carnival of Monsters, I think. Which was designed by Richard Garfield. And I have to admit, Carnival of Monsters, I thought, well, this is really cool. What would you get if you mixed Seven Wonders with Magic the Gathering? Designed by the designer of Magic the Gathering. That's what Carnival of Monsters was. It was neat, but not really for us. Um, but Alexander Pfister, now it, it, you know, coming into this monster universe, where... In this world, there's monsters all over the place, and there are people who go out and capture them to basically put them in carnivals. And that's what we're doing in this game. But instead of um, card drafting to do it, we're rolling dice. And again, this kind of has a Yahtzee-style thing going, although very, very different. It just kind of feels yahtzee but a really fresh new way that you set dice aside and, and do rolling and whatnot. But... Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a nice, fast playing game. And the interesting thing was, I don't actually have a physical copy of this game. Jen and I played it on Tabletopia. Because I wanted to do that. I wanted to try. I, Jen had never used Tabletopia. I wanted to see if she would and could enjoy it. And first thing we did is we played Castles of Tuscany, which is one of our favorite games of the year, and we both enjoyed it so much. I thought, well, hey, let's try something else we've never played. And Monster Expedition, hey, this is available on Tabletopia. I can read the rules really fast. And we sat down and played it. And we both liked it, but we didn't love it. So it's at 15, and I don't know how much of that is because we played it on Tabletopia, and if we played it in real life with physical cards and real dice and all that, maybe we would have liked it more. It's hard to say. I did think it was clever. Very, very lightweight. This is not a typical big, what you've come to expect from Alexander Pfister. This is more akin to his Oh My Goods or um, you know Tybor the Builder, but this is even more lightweight than that. This is Alexander Pfister making a family-friendly gateway-style game where you go out and capture really beautiful monsters by rolling colorful pretty dice. And it seemed to work well, but... At this point, like I said, we both just thought, oh, yeah, that was okay. That was kind of fun. And maybe it would rate higher if we could play the physical version. So this is a very preliminary rating. Um, you know, I mean, the tactile nature of games, that's a huge part of the overall experience. Physically rolling and re-rolling and shaking them and so desperate for getting that one number you need and, oh, I didn't get it and whatnot. So it seems sharp. Um, but I, I would definitely love to give it a try sometime IRL to see if my rating would climb at all. But right now, um, we played it on Tabletopia, where it totally worked fine, um, and it came in at number 15 of the month. Okay, then we go on to number 14, Azul Summer Pavilion, which I have to admit, I almost put in the spinoffs, um, because this is basically, I think, the second sequel to Azul, and... It really does borrow a lot of the same features as Azul. Um, you know, the, the same way there's a whole bunch of lovely, wonderful feeling um, ceramic tiles that are in all these factories. You pick all the colors from a tile, and then all the other ones go out into the street. When the first player to take them from the street collects them, they also suffer some negative point loss. And we're trying to collect the right colors to uh, get into groups so that we can basically create a beautiful mosaic in front of us. The game is gorgeous. I would argue this is probably even prettier than the original Azul, and the, and the original Azul is already a very striking game. If you see somebody playing it, you just want to play it because it looks so enticing, and I'd say this looks even prettier. And um, like I said, the drafting is pretty much exactly the same, but then the way you use these tiles to actually make your mosaic is pretty radically different. And so much so that I figured, okay, this could stand on its own and not just be a simple spin-off. Although I could have put it in the spin-off. Maybe I should have. But anyway, it's here now. It's my number 14. And why didn't it rate higher? Well, um, first of all, to compare it to Azul, 
the interesting thing is, you um, there, there's this new concept of sometimes different colors are wilds, so you can use them in place of other ones. This, um, you know, and you have a lot more flexibility about how you actually lay the tiles out. You, um, uh, and also, if you don't, if you can't use all the tiles you get in a certain round, you can set some of them aside so you can carry them over to a future round. So overall, Winter or Summer Pavilion gives you so much more flexibility. It really, I'm not going to say it makes Azul easy, but it makes it more easy going. Azul, the original, is punishing. It can really, if a bad move can really work you over. And you can get yourself in a situation where, oh my gosh, I've made some choices and I really have to live with those consequences now. In Summer Pavilion, there are fewer consequences. It's just a much more easygoing game. Because you have so much more freedom and flexibility. It makes it, if anything, maybe a little bit more complex, actually. But I found myself thinking, I think... I, I appreciated the challenge of the original Azul that puts you in more of a restrictive straitjacket for how you actually play these tiles and you make commitments and then you got to live with them for better or for worse to be able to score points. In a pavilion, you're just wide open. You can kind of do whatever you want. Don't worry, man. There's no bad tiles. It's all good. You don't use them now, you'll use them later. Whereas um, in Azul, oh, you don't use them now? You have to throw them away and you lose tons of points. Um... The one thing I'll say I appreciate over Summer or the original Zoo, uh, Summer Pavilion, because it's so easygoing, also becomes much less cutthroat. The, our problem with the Zool was you could make moves that are super aggressive, really nasty hate drafting moves to work your opponent over if you can get one step ahead of them and really ruin their plans. Um, it's hard to ruin plans in Summer Pavilion because it's just so wide open and easygoing. So I appreciate that it's less cutthroat. But I don't appreciate that it's more laid back and easygoing. I'd like a combination of the two. Uh, which is why it came in at number 14. Uh, still, very sharp game. We definitely enjoyed playing it. I'd certainly play it again. But yeah, not a keeper for us. Neither was the original Zool. But interestingly, for completely different reasons. It really felt different enough to not just be a spin-off. It's its own thing. And it's my number 14. Azul. A summer Pavilion. Then we go on to number 13. Medici. The Dice Game. All right, and I feel I've completed my Medici goal. I've covered the original Medici and Medici the card game. And um, now we get to the dice game. Reiner Canizia keeps going back to one of his sharpest, most clever designs of all time and comes up with new ways for us to be gathering resources in the new world to put on ships and send back to the old world. Um, every step of the way, pushing your luck and hoping for the best. Like the card game, the original Medici's um, reliance on players having to uh, basically run an auction and try to figure out dynamically what the relative value of every single thing is from every point of view, that's gone. Instead of drafting cards, we're rolling dice to decide what goods we are going to load up on the ship. And it works great. We definitely enjoyed it. I'm on the fence about keeping it because the reality is... The dice game is the lightest of the three. So far, Medici is the hardest game, uh, easily. I mean, it really pushes you very hard. Medici dice game is the lightest of them while still keeping the same central theme. And the card game exists somewhere in the middle. I think I like the card game, Medici the card game, the best. I mean, all three of these uh, beautiful new Vincent to Trey versions of Medici are great. Um, and we might hold on to Medici the dice game, which is basically a roll and write. But one big thing is... 
I didn't feel this way in the card game, but in the dice game, I feel it suffers it too. I think it's going to be a much more interesting, engaging game when you've got more players competing in all the different metrics. Because it, what we found is a two-player game, oh, you're focusing on that color? I guess I'll just focus on this color. And we're not really going to bump into each other very much. Uh, because uh, it's a there aren't as many players vying for dominance in the same types of spices. And so that... It worked. It was definitely fun, fast, fluid, compelling right up to the end. But I bet you, as a, even just adding one more player, would escalate this experience so much more. Um, which is why it just came in a little bit on the low side. But still, very solid, enjoyable little roll and write. Medici, the dice game. Then we go on to number 12, <clears throat> Six Castles. Which uh, is a game I've had since... Gosh, February or March, and I've been trying to get it to the table to play it a bit more with Jen and get it filmed because I'm really intrigued by it. It's from uh, Rolla and Costa, a relatively new design duo who also put out Yinsi and oh something else that I've also recently played. Anyway, uh, this Rolla and Costa, those are their nicknames, or I think it's portmanteau of their names. Are, uh, somebody said, oh, it sounds like Roller Coaster. So, a Roller Coaster, a Rolla and Costa. These is, this is a design duo to watch because every one of their games are really far out and Six Castles might be the most crazy tile layer I have ever played. On one level, it's really simple. Like Carcassonne, on my turn, I've got one tile. I have to add it somewhere following the simple rules of put it adjacent to an existing tile as you know the central board, just like Carcassonne grows. That's normal. But what happens after I place the one tile I've got to, in my hand... Actually, that's not true. I mean, I've got a few different tiles to choose from, and then I play one. Um, right. After I play the one tile, I then have to decide, did I play that tile to actually um, engage in goods production? You know, harvesting uh, stuff from the land so that I could sell to the six castles and score points that way. Uh, in which case, I use that tile and its adjacent tiles in kind of a... Uh, a harvesting area dominant, or you know, a, 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 a kind of tile matching uh, game where you, you place the tile and you use it to harvest resources. Instead, after I place the tile, I could say, hey, I'm not harvesting resources. I am instead going to be using a worker placement style game and put a worker on that tile and then have that worker and any other workers I already have out there move around to claim land in a Carcassonne-style way. So imagine a Carcassonne game where once you put your workers down, they can move. They don't stay still. They move around from place to place to get you know score things and then score other things later on. Um, but then imagine that Carcassonne where you could completely ignore the workers and play this radically different style game where you're harvesting resources and it becomes more like... Um, uh, an Agricola style or a, a, like a Walnut Grove style game where you're getting resources to sell to the castles that get built. and um, Or you can mix and match and do a little bit of both. But every round you place a tile and then you decide, am I playing this game or am I playing this other completely different game? It's like it's got two games in one that are both happening at the same time. And every time you place a tile, you might place it such that it really lets you do your worker movement, uh, Carcassonne style stuff. But even worse, it gives your opponents exactly what they need. So even if you're playing game A and the other player's playing game B, you got to pay attention because you don't want to give them what they need. It's really clever. Really um, knocked us for a loop. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, very poorly written rules that make it very, very tough to learn. But the core gameplay is really simple once you get the hang of it. And I was really blown away by it. Um, uh, it's it's uh, my number 12 of the month, 
six castles. Then we move on to my number 11, Paleo. Right, okay. Uh, this is interesting because it is the first cooperative game from longtime uh, Euro game publisher superstars Hans and Gluck. Uh, is it Im Gluck or In Gluck? I think it's Im. Hans Im Gluck. And uh, like I said, they are known for nice, crunchy, re- you know, putting out one or two games a year. Um, you know, really well-known ones like uh, Russian Railroads or Voyages of Marco Polo. Just beautiful, wonderful, clockwork, elegant, um, lovely produced uh, Euros. This is the first time Hans and Gluck has ever done a cooperative game. And since it's such a radical departure from them, I was really keen to try it because I figured there must be something really special about this game. And there is. Um, It is a very sharp design because we are working cooperatively in the Paleolithic era trying to survive, uh, build our tribe, um, you know, deal with all kinds of calamities. And the core gameplay, I so appreciate a cooperative game that does not in any way, shape, or form borrow from the now standard pandemic formula of, oh, look, here's the world, and we have to travel around the world and try to complete some goal while constantly mitigating the effects of some looming disaster. Um, you know, probably that's, that's 85% of all co-op games on the market right there. Paleo doesn't do that. Paleo's in that other bucket of... Because every round, um, there, there's a big old deck of cards that is created when you set up the game by combining different modules. So you could have, oh, there's a cold snap and we're being chased by saber two tigers. Let's put those two decks together and see what this uh, thing feels like. Or, oh, there's heroes of the Stone Age who have, who have names and special quests that go on combined with um, you know barren land. And let's put those two things together. So you can get a lot of variety as you mix this master deck up. Then, at the start of a round, you divvy up that deck between all the players and every round each player draws three cards but they don't get to look at the cards they only get to look at the back and then they have to choose which of these three cards am I going to go and explore and interact with and so I might oh there's some forest and there's a disaster of some sort and a uh, I can go back to camp and hang out at camp which of those three things am I going to do you might say anything but the disaster, but you got to deal with those disasters eventually because if they don't, they will sneak up and kill you. Um, so, And maybe you're feeling really strong we can deal with the disaster. But anyway, everybody draws three cards, makes a choice about what they're going to look at, and then everybody reveals their card at the same time. And then that's where the interaction comes in because most cards, I either need to spend resources to be able to get rewards based on what I interacted with. Um, but if... It turns out I don't have the resources I need to interact with that card well, or I just don't want to. One of the choices on the card is help other players. Because you might have drawn a card that we all agree, oh my gosh, we have to do that thing. That will you know, give us a whole new invention that we can take back to camp, and that'll really help us with the coming winter and stuff like that. We have to do that. Okay, even though I really want to do this because I ran into some um, you know, stranger who would give me stuff, all I got to do is give him one thing. It's a tough choice. I could do this, but if I say goodbye to that stranger and instead help you so you can do your big thing, well, maybe you'll help me on the next turn. That level of interaction between players, of imperfect knowledge, taking you know, leaps of intuition, because you know roughly what types of things are in these locations, but you never know exactly, and then finding out what it is, and then having to decide, do I do my own thing or do I help you do your thing? Brilliant. Core gameplay is brilliant. Uh, wonderful presentation, great replayability with all the different card decks and all that. One complaint about the game, and it's the same complaint I've had before in this roundup today. 
It works as a two-player game, but oh my gosh, it'd be so much better with more. Because in a two-player game, I got one card, you've got one card. Either we're both going to do our own thing, or I'm going to help you, or you're going to help me. As soon as you have a three-player game, then, oh crap, I need it. Which one of you two are going to help me? And now we have to figure out, or maybe we're both going to help you, or I can't help you, you can't. Well, I really want to help you. I can help you, but I can't help you. Um, but you can help me. And as soon as you would have a third player, that's going to really create the interesting social dynamics of who helps who, and it really pushes the next level. It works as a two-player game just fine. But it is nowhere near as compelling as it would be. And I so wish the rules... I mean, uh, borrowing... I mean, I, got, I mentioned Dune Imperium has a brilliant, super easy, clean, fast-playing, automated system to automate a third player. So that those battles for area control are more interesting and dynamic. I wish Paleo had done the same thing to make these tough decisions about who helps who more interesting and dynamic. This would have been my top five of the month if they had implemented some kind of dummy system along the same lines as what Dune Imperium rightly did. They didn't do it, so as, as I'll only ever play as a two-player game, it comes in a bit lower than it deserves because it's a brilliant design, and uh, I'm really impressed by it overall. My number 11 of the month, Paleo. Mm. Then we go on to number 10, Rune. And um, very sadly, this just, I believe, um, just yesterday finished its camp its Kickstarter campaign for uh, you know, a reprint of Dune of Rune plus an expansion. I've just got the original Rune. I haven't gotten the new expansion. I don't know if you could I don't know if there's a kickbacker, kick tracker or something like that. You could go get it. But I mean you can just get the base game. This is a brilliant, fast playing, little filler uh, card patching game. Or you know, uh, which is what I'm calling them, where you uh, you have cards and you kind of stack them on top of each other, and they kind of quilt together in interesting ways. A bunch of games do this. Uh, it seems like there's more and more of them coming out. What makes Rune different from all the other ones? Your Honshus and your um, uh, Sprawlopolises and your uh, uh, walking through Provences and your Hanging Gardens. What makes this one different? One. It's super tiny. Well, although, actually, to be fair, the uh, Button Shy games are also super tiny. This is a micro game. So it's... it's a. Uh, but this... Uh, uh, everybody's uh, working to the same central area, trying to get matching runes next to each other, and then Carcassonne-style putting one of their three meeples on it to claim, yeah, those are mine. I'm going to score those. And if I do that early, other players might start covering some of those up so they're not worth as many points, or they might start expanding in different directions. Not all runes are created equal. Some are more value than others, but those are the tougher ones to try to get into groups to be able to claim. It's a really sharp, fast-playing game. And Jen and I were super impressed. I mean, it is a game of stark efficiency. It does so much gameplay with so little. Just a small deck of cards and some meeples. And we really like it. Jen said this is probably her new favorite restaurant game. She would want to have this in the car that if we ever found ourselves eating out, if we ever do find ourselves eating out ever again, to be able, while we're waiting for the food, hey, let's just play Rune. We'll play it. It's just a, it's less than 10 minutes. It takes up a tiny little footprint, and it's fun. It's fast. And the thing that really does make it so interesting is the really, probably the most harsh restrictions I've ever seen in a game like this for being able to lay cards over existing ones. All of them have different rules. The rules for Rune really make it's surprisingly puzzly because there's two different ways you can lay a tile or a card down on tops of other ones, and um, it really does your brain in sometimes. It just like shift gears. I was only thinking of it this way, but oh, I could do it this other way. Neat game, fun, fast. You know, a lot of game in your pocket, and uh, it's my number ten of the month. Rune. Then we've got number nine, New York Zoo, the latest. Um, 
Polyomino, uh, tile lane game from design superstar Uwe Rosenberg. Supposedly, he had a trilogy of these with Cottage Garden and um, Spring Meadows and Indian Summer. But it turns out he's not done because now he's brought out New York Zoo. And it's interesting. This is a combination of, a, of like a lot of Uwe's greatest hits. It uses the same tile drafting mechanism as Patchwork. And, uh, you know, where, where it's kind of a, a quasi-rondelle that we're using to grab the tiles to lay. And then you lay the tiles out, and our goal, our sole goal is to race, to be the first to completely fill up our New York Zoo with all of these tiles that represent all the different um, environments, the habitats we can put animals in. But in addition to that, there's this whole other game layered on top where we are using these cute little meeples of penguins and kangaroos and whatnot and putting them in the um, enclosures as we expand. And every once in a while, those animals breed and have babies. So it's taking the animal husbandry of Agricola and the tile drafting and laying of patchwork and making something very new and very different and a lot of fun. Jen and I really enjoyed this quite a bit. I don't think it's as good as Spring Meadow, which I think is still his top, but this is probably his number two. It's an excellent game. It might make it into my top ten polyomino games of all time if I ever make that list. I really should. It's certainly getting to that point. But anyway, New York Zoo is an excellent new tile layer with a lot of really clever stuff and lovely, cute, adorable little animal meeple components. My number nine of the month. New York Zoo. Then we go on to number eight, Citastato. Or, uh, I, I, so I, I'm not going to pronounce it in Italian, because apparently it's Cheetah Stato or something like that. Apparently, um, it's on Kickstarter right now. It just launched. Or maybe it's launching in a couple of days. I'm not quite sure. Anyway, um, I, I don't remember the timing. No, I think this should be live by the time I have put this video up. And um, it's going to be called City State. And this is a very, very clever game. Uh, it's a bag builder, where we're putting a bunch of cubes in bags, uh, at the beginning of a round, drawing a bunch out. The different color cubes represent different things we can do in this Italian city-state, you know, in the, in the Renaissance. We have red cubes are for military war actions. Green cubes are for interacting with the guilds. Um, what is it? Uh, yellow cubes are mercantile. Uh, and, you know, so... We draw these cubes, and, I got, and now I've got a handful of cubes. And over the course of the game, I can increase my hand size so I can draw more and more. The different color... The first action I want to do... Say I play a single yellow cube. That's a merchant action. And I do... Um, that yellow cube could do one of three different actions. I can either uh, draft a yellow card and um, either burn it or use it to get special abilities. Burn it to unlock other abilities, kind of Seven Wonders style, or use it. Or I can forget the card and do a standard merchant action. So anyway, I play my one yellow cube that was in my hand, and then it's your turn, you do something. Now, for my second turn of the round, I have to play a pair of cubes to do my second action. They have to match. Fortunately, I've got two red cubes. Oh, good. I can do a military action. Great. And, uh, you know, and again, that means either draft a red card to trash it or use it for a special ability or use the main military action. Now, for my third, now I've got to have three of a kind. And so, over a round, it gets progressively more and more challenging to be able to do multiple actions. But there are so many ways that you can convert cubes into other cubes and quickly snag cubes as you need them. It's a very, very sharp game. Uh, and I really liked... The, the action selection mechanism. I thought it was very clever, really simple and elegant, but very challenging, very thinky. But that's just half of what makes uh, City State special. The other thing... Oh, by the way, folks, like I said, this is on Kickstarter, so this is a paid preview, so bear that in mind, uh, my subjective opinions. The other thing that really makes this special is if you take a card 
And you don't trash it just to get a, an immediate bonus, but instead use it for some ability. You keep that card in your hand. At the end of the game, after we play through seven rounds, if I recall correctly, we will then have the opportunity to play one of every color card at the end in kind of almost this sudden death overtime thing. Where So... As you are playing cards throughout the game, if you're not trashing them, you're holding on to them with an eye towards, hey, this could be part of an awesome five or six or seven string combo of amazement I can pull off at the end of the game when we get to final scoring. But here's the trick. As I was scoring points throughout the game, I keep track of it on a victory point tracker like any other Euro. When I get to the end and I'm going to play my big super combo chain of five or six or seven cards that I've been saving up all the way through the game to use... Um, whatever I score out of those will get scored with a different victory point marker. So at the end of the game, I'm going to have two scores. The score of points I made all the way through the game, and then the score I made at the end of the game for the super move. And I, I want the higher of those two scores to be my final, but I have to have achieved certain goals to be able to use the higher one instead of the lower. So ideally, I want both of those scores to be kind of so if I don't quite, if I end up with a low one, it's still close to the high one. But if I do have a really low score and a high score at the end of the game, that means I had to have been collecting a different resource, uh, crowns, to basically have the ear of the king um, throughout the game to be able to deal with that discrepancy. And so City States has this brilliant level of long-term planning. And I said in my run-through of it, it kind of reminds me in that way of Madeira, where you have these objectives that you deal with multiple times throughout the course of the game that pushes you in a long-term strategy way in, in, in a very unique way. It's pretty rare to see. I mean, And again, there's so much tactical stuff. I take this card, am I using it now? Or am I using it later? Uh, the bag-building stuff is very, very tension-filled as well. This is a very... Very impressive game. Uh, my number eight of the month, <clears throat> City State, or Chichastato. I believe I got that right. Anyway, let's move on to number seven of the month, Levitation. Now, this is another paid Kickstarter preview, and I think this Kickstarter is still live or hasn't gone live yet. I'm not quite sure, folks. You can just do a search for Kickstarter Levitation if this sounds interesting to you. What is it? This is a dice drafting game, which is what pulled me in because I love dice drafting. Um, and uh, the other thing that pulled me in is uh, a really cool trick that was in New Eden, a dice drafter that came out a couple of years ago. I love this idea that every die I take, not only am I taking it for the die itself because it's color... Uh, or its number has some particular use for me. But I'm also, it depends on where is it on the board. Because if I take a die from this pen, I'll trigger this special action. If I take a die from this pen, I'll trigger this special action. So effectively, these are multi-use dice that I'm dice drafting. And that is awesome. It's been awesome in other games. It's excellent here. But that's only half of the game. Because the other half of the game is we are Victorian-era magicians uh, using these dice to learn tricks so that we can go on tours throughout Europe and perform our tricks. Every time we perform a trick, you activate that card's special ability. And the thing is, as you learn more tricks, you can create an awesome little engine between all your tricks. And um, so, the uh, but the tricky thing is, the die you drafted to either learn a trick or get resources or go on tour or whatever, um, that die also specifies which cards in your engine you get to activate. Because if you have a bunch of cards that needs fives or sixes and you draft a two, I'm not going to be able to activate all my cards. But I needed that two because that gave me the resources I need so I could go on. And so those kinds of, you know, that that tension of getting the dice 
for in a perfect world, when the game really, when the stars align, is when you grab a die that lets you run the majority of your engine and do some really powerful combo stuff there. But it also gives you what you wanted from the main board. And pulling that off is so satisfying. But this is a very sharp dice drafting game. Uh, again, it was a paid Kickstarter preview, so my take my subjective opinion with a grain of salt. But you can learn more about it on Kickstarter. Jen, I really enjoyed this a lot. Obviously, it's my number seven of the month. And this is a very, very good month. Let's keep going, though, to number six of the month. Twinkle, which is a- another um, Kickstarter title, another paid preview, and I don't believe this is launched yet. Or maybe it's literally launching the day that I make this video live. Again, you can just do a, you know, you can you can search for Kickstarter Twinkle. I think this Kickstarter is live as of the time you're seeing this video. If you saw it within, you know, the first couple of weeks when I put it up. Anyway, long story short, all of that aside, this is a dice, um, it's kind of a dice drive. No, not really. Um, well, this is a game where we are trying to create the most beautiful constellation in the nighttime sky. And the constellation is composed of a bunch of multi-sided dice. And um, every time you play, you're going to have a set of objective cards that indicate how you can score points. Either by getting dice that combine to reach certain sums, or that have different die faces or different colors. There's lots of different... This game comes with a big old deck. And every time you play, you're going to get an interesting mix of different scoring opportunities. And then, no Knowing what it is, how you can score points when you're trying to design your constellations, on your turn, you are going to take three dice. Um, you know, and there's D4s, D6s, D8s, D10s, D12s in different colors. You're going to take three of them, roll them, and then claim one of those three and add somewhere onto one of your constellations. And this game is so simple. It's so easy to teach, and yet it's got so much depth. There is so much crunchiness, because any one die, when you're collecting those three dice, and all, I could do this one, because this would actually help me with these two objectives, and I could get another one of those, it would only help me with one, and I could get this other one that would help me with this other objective, and then I roll, and now, oh, two of these dice will really work with that one, but this is the one that really is going to help this other objective. So many interesting decisions in a fast, fun, playing little game that's gorgeous, it's it's just a delightful to see all these colorful little dice and seeing the constellations grow in front of you. Very, very clever. I was very impressed. Jen and I both really liked it a lot. No surprise, because it's my number six of the month, Twinkle. Okay, now we go on to number five, Winter Kingdom. Um, which is the sequel to Kingdom Builder. And boy, should I have made this a spin... Uh, in this spinoff. No, no, no. This is unique enough as well. It has the same core idea. Like Kingdom Builder, on your turn, you have one card in your hand that says you can build settlements in one type of terrain, either in forests or meadows or deserts or, or lavender fields, whatever it is. And so that card tells you where I'm going to place three houses. But um, if I can, I must build next to existing houses I've already put on the board. So, there is, like Kingdom Build before it, an incredible amount of tension in where you decide to build to give yourself flexibility to be able to continue to build. What Winter Kingdom does is, it takes that core idea and really cranks it up to 11. The board is significantly bigger, um, you know, because it's now created out of, what is it, uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 hexagon, gigantic hexagon, instead of 4 quad-sized houses. So the world is bigger, there's a lot more... In fact, the world is so big, there are effectively teleporters, or they're tall tunnels, that you can build and expand into other areas, because it's so ginormous now. Um, and um, you like Kingdom Builder before it, every time you play, you're going to get a collection of objective cards that tell you what it is you're trying to do, how you're trying to score points. Um, the biggest change 
is <clears throat> that the uh, original Kingdom Builder, unlike uh, Winter Kingdom, had um, objects that were out on the board. That if you could build in certain places, you would get these tiles that you could use as a one-time special ability to break the regular rules or enhance them or do all kinds of stuff. And those are randomly chosen every time you play two. That system of getting tiles from the board to be able to use as one-time special powers has been replaced with players having a hand of cards that give them all kinds of special powers. And so, um, with that hand of cards that you're playing to you know, accentuate what, you can, what your core action you can do every turn is, this gives you a lot more flexibility to do a lot more varied stuff in a much bigger, more expansive world with more ways to score points. And so that's what I mean when I say this is Winter Kingdom is Kingdom Builder taken to an 11. It just blows up and you know it gets bigger in every way. Now I think it's great. I don't think it's as good as Kingdom Builder though. I missed as I played. I and we were having a great time. It's my number 5 of the month. And this was a great great month with some of the best games of the year coming out. But if I had to pick between Winter Kingdom and Kingdom Builder, I think it's kind of back to what I was talking about with Azul um Pavilion. You, it, you have so much more freedom and so much more flexibility that a lot of the tension is gone. Yes, there's still tension. You're racing and competing to try and score points. But the world is so big now. And with all the teleporters and all the cards you've got that let you do special things. I mean, in Kingdom Builder, getting a tile and then only getting to use it once was such a special thing. And, it, you know, so when do I use this? What is the perfect time now that I worked so hard to get that and I made other sacrifices? Here, no, you just got a bunch of cards. You can just use them. Use them. Just have fun. And I can see for some people this will make Winter Kingdom a much better game than Kingdom Builder because in the same way people will probably enjoy Winter Pavilion or Azul Summer Pavilion over Azul because it's not as restrictive it's much more wide open you um you 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 have freedom and flexibility to do whatever you want and I think that's fine there's nothing wrong with it but I think the game loses a lot of the tension that makes Kingdom Builder so special so I really love Kingdom Builder but or you know I really really love Kingdom Builder and Winter Kingdom is very nice as well. Just not quite as good. But still, hey, Winter Kingdom is my number five of the month. Very enjoyable game. Just uh, Kingdom Builder, which won the Spieldish Yaris, if I recall correctly. That's a tough act to follow. But Winter Kingdom does a very good job. And it's my number five of the month. Then we've got number four, Athenium. And this game really, really surprised me. It is from Renegade Games. And last year, maybe it was the year before, Renegade Games put out a game called Ex Libris, which is basically a game about stocking or you know, restocking bookshelves in a fantasy universe. You're a librarian trying to get the right books on the right shelves to score points. And uh, you know, there's variable ways that you score points that are set up, and every time you play, it's a bit different. So, what I just described is the exact same description for Athenium. The exact same thing. The exact same. A type of thing we're trying to do. Variable objectives, trying to get books in the right positions, and all of that. Now, um, it's still a very different game. Uh, you know, this could have been called Ex Libris 2. Uh, the Ex Libris thing. Because, oh, now we've got completely new bookshelves we've got to stock. Because it works in a completely different way. And i got to be honest, I think Athenium is superior to Ex Libris. And Ex Libris was already a very, very good game. Very well considered. But Jen and I were really impressed by Athenium. The challenge to be able to score these things is much tougher. Um, the, uh, the objective cards are on kind of this uh, conveyor belt. Where, you know, they don't stick around. You have have, um, you know, there's four of them on display. The one that's furthest to the left, you got four rounds to do that one. The one that's furthest to the right, it's going to disappear this round. And then everything else. So there's this constant high-level tension 
I can't possibly do all of them. Am I going to try to work long-term for this one that I've got some time? Or am I going to try to finish this one really quick before it disappears? Very cool stuff. And, um, you know, like Ex Libris before it, the books themselves, every single tile has a unique title and they're really kind of cute and charming to read. Uh, it's it, it's a, it's a Last one was in a fantasy village, a uh, high fantasy sword and sorcery village. This time we're in a Harry Potter university type setting. But... It's just a super sharp game. We really enjoyed it a lot. Very fun. Uh, and again, super tension-filled, fast-playing, little tile-laying game. Number four of the month. That's huge. I cannot stress how good this game is, folks. We were really blown away by Athenium. Then we go on to number three of the month, The Lost Ruins of Arnak. And I suspect this is going to make a lot of people's best game of the month. This is probably going to make a bunch of people's game of the year. With good reason. It is excellent. Like Dune Imperium before it, it is a fusion of uh, deck building and worker placement. You're building up your deck to so the cards will give you the abilities to send your workers where you need to go to do stuff. Now, in Dune Imperium, the workers are being sent ultimately with the goal of getting the resources to be able to engage in warfare and win these skirmish battles, and which is why it didn't work for us. In Lost Ruins of Arnak, our workers, our archaeologists, Indiana Jones-style archaeologists, who we are sending out to basically go explore and try to find the ruins and the lost history of this mysterious civilization that has completely disappeared and has been forgotten. And given my choice, a worker placement deck-building game where I could fight... Um, and Scrabble for dominance of a desert planet versus a worker placement um, deck building game where I can go on big adventures and um, run afoul of scary monsters and discover ancient lost secrets. I'll take that one, please, which is why Ruins of Arnak uh, comes in so high. The deck building is excellent, and it should be. It's from the designer of Clank, and this is him, Paul Denon, really proving that he is a designer to be watching because Clank fused with dungeon crawling was brilliant. Um, oh, shoot! No, no, no. Dune Imperium. Dune Imperium was Paul Denon. Still, everything. I, uh, Paul Denon is an amazing designer. Dune Imperium proves he's really got... Ah, got those mixed up, folks. It was a crazy month that I played both of these um, de deck-building worker placement games. And, of course, last month I played Endless Winter as well, which was another excellent one. Although none of these invented it. I mean, you got to go all the way back to um, that game from Artipia, which I can't think of right now, which was excellent as well. But anyway, sorry. Uh, Lost Ruins of Arnak is actually from a first-time design team. A couple, if I recall correctly. Uh, I can't remember their names. Min and Chin or something like that. But anyway, it's their first published game, although I believe they've been developers for Publisher CGE for quite a while. So, you know, they've been in the industry. But this is a brilliant freshman effort from them. Wonderful design. So much fun. Lots of replayability. My only complaint about it is, and I didn't really feel like this would be the case so much with Dune Imperium, um, is... Ultimately, I think this is going to need an expansion. The same way most deck builders need expansions to give it enough life to keep on coming back. Um, because there wasn't quite as much flexibility in the powers of the cards we're getting. And I would have liked to see a little bit more. But even still, this is a great first step. And I'm sure it is going to get expansion content like other deck builders. And I can't wait to play it more because it's a lot of fun. Everybody says, what's the better game? I do think Dune Imperium is the superior design, but it wasn't for us because of what it does. But I do think Lost Ruins of Arnak is amazing also, and it's my number three of the month. And for people who are wondering, to save you the trouble of asking, Endless Winter trumps both of them, because that's a worker placement deck building game where the main verb is build, which we prefer to explore, although we prefer explore to kill. 
So it basically comes down, of those three games, do you want to worker place deck build to build stuff, explore stuff, or kill stuff? And um, Lost Rooms of Arnak is my number three game of the month, putting all the comparisons aside. Excellent game. People are going to love this. This is going to be a big hit when it goes wide. Lost Rooms of Arnak. We're not done, though, folks, because number two is Cubitos. And I'm not sure. I got a review copy of this. I don't think it comes out until next year, unfortunately. Um, because I'm just here to say it's amazing. Of course it's amazing. It's my number two of the month. This is a, um, a bag-building game where we are putting custom dice in the bag, drawing these dice out, rolling them, and then pushing our luck. Um, because we can keep re-rolling the dice we pull out of the bag to try to get the perfect collection of die faces we need to basically push our little cubitos, which are these cute little cube creatures. The game is a race. We are literally trying to cross the finish line first. And the game comes with, I call okay, four different racetracks that all have a lot of variable special effects on them and stuff like that. Uh, it's really nicely designed, a great presentation. But what really makes the game special is every time you play, uh, you've got all these different colored dice. You can spend resources to buy them and put them in the bag so you can draw them in future rounds. And um, like I said, you roll... And then uh, all the dice have blank faces. If uh, everything you roll is blank faces, you bust. Although if you haven't set any aside, you don't bust. It's only once you've set aside three dice, if I recall correctly, that you would then start busting. So your first couple of rolls are safe. But then after you've set a few aside, you have a tough choice. I've still got four dice here. Chances are, if I roll again, I will get at least one more face. But if I get all blanks, I will bust and I will lose everything. The push your luck in this game is palpable, and it's so enjoyable. It is, uh, you know, especially because unlike some push your luck games, the uh, um, was it John D. Clare, Mister Mystic Vale himself, the designer, had the uh, the design smarts to recognize, hey, if you bust, let's give you a. Um, uh, a consolation prize. Every time you bust, you work your way up on... Uh, in, instead of your racer actually moving forward, if you bust, you've got another little cubitose, which represents your cheering fans in the stadium. And when you bust, they say, Don't worry, you got it! And that means they move forward on an audience progress track. And the further they move forward, the more they cheer for you, and that unlocks other bonuses that you can use to build a stronger bag and do all kinds of special effects there. Really smart, beautifully done. I mean, I every time I've played this game a half a dozen times now, and I've never played without busting at least once. And um, but busting is not the. I mean, sometimes you want to bust because you want to bump up to that next level. But but I've rolled the perfect thing, and then on top of all that. It, there's the same colored dice every time you play, but as part of setup, you draw a unique card for each of the colored dice that means the dice have different powers from game to game. And that's brilliant, too. Now, I should give credit where credit is due. Uh, the design of Cubidos was inspired by the design of automobiles from David Short, which had this idea of a bag builder, but they were just regular cubes that were represented special powers based on a unique set of cards, and it was still a race game, but it was like a Daytona 500 game. John D. Clare took that design, uh, replaced the cubes with dice, and added this push-your-luck thing, and then it was rethemed to be this cute, adorable, fantasy, cube-world creature race. And it's awesome. It is so awesome. Look for this, folks. This is going to be... Everybody's going to be talking about this game when it goes wide. This is going to be... This is probably going to be an evergreen, I think. For I, I can't see how this is not going to be a game players are playing for years. Because it's so much fun. And the expandability of this game is so ripe for deployment. But even still, um, the, you know, unlike Ruins of Arnak, which I kind of got the impression I want to see more cards, there is so much variety with the cards that come in this game. 
It's my number two of the month, folks. It's amazing. It's Cubitos. But we now come to the end of the road to talk about my number one, Merv, Heart of the Silk Road. And no, it's not Merv Griffin. People of a certain age, my age, who remember Merv. Uh, Merv, uh, at one point in history, was the largest, the most heavily populated city in the world. It was in a perfect space along the Silk Road. So merchants from the east and the west would stop there and engage in trade. And um, this is a brilliant, brilliant game um, from an up-and-coming designer, uh, Luciano Fao. Oh, I can't think of your name. I want to say Fabiano. Oh, and it's oh, it's right up there, but it's underneath a bunch of boxes. Oh wait, no. Yes, Fabio Lapiano. Fabio Lapiano. Watch this guy. Fabio Lapiano with the um, Merv and before it Ragusa, and I haven't played it, but I've heard nothing but great things about Kalimala. Kalimala is definitely a designer to watch. He is a hot up and comer. A few years ago, I was super impressed by this Alexander Fister guy based off a couple of his early games. I guess like, a guy to watch. Now Luciano. Uh, or no, Fabio Lapiano. It takes that uh, mantle as the guy to watch because Merv is brilliant. We are trying to build up the ancient city um, by moving our meeple along the outskirts. Wherever we move our meeple, we activate. All, we build a building somewhere in that rower column wherever our meeple move to, and then we can activate all the buildings of that rower column that are of the same color. And so that's an interesting thing right off the bat. I don't have to move and then build and activate my own buildings. I can use your buildings because you have really set up an awesome little little mini engine combo string. And so maybe I just want to go and activate your stuff rather than building my own. Especially because that means I'm occupying the space, so you can't do it. But more importantly, um, even though I'm using your stuff, you get passive um, resources on my turn that then you could use on your own. And everything we're doing, the, uh, the central activation, building up the city, activating these buildings, collecting resources, drives, what is it? There's like... Um, Five or six different things. We can engage and trade with the roving caravans. We can uh, work our way up the mosque. We can get in good with the uh, sultan. We can build walls to protect the city because eventually, um, in the second half of the game, the uh, Mongol horde will come and start trying to destroy buildings. And we can get a lot of uh, points and resources for saving the city and protecting it. Um, and there's a few other things. Oh, uh, going to the university and engaging in learning. Um, it's... A really, really brilliant game. It's my number one game of the month. It's definitely, there is no way this is not going to make my top 10 games of the year because it's so brilliant. And it has a fantastic solo mode too, by the way. I didn't film. I filmed it as a two-player game, but the, I was really impressed by the solo mode. Uh, anyway, like I said, what's your name again? Fabio. Fabio uh, Lapiano. Watch that space. L remember that name. He is going places. Merv. Heart of the Silk Road is amazing. It is my number one game of the month in a very, very good month. And, oh boy, folks, that is it. And that was a lot. 26 games in what? Gosh, not quite 90 minutes. Oh my goodness. Jeez Louise. But I made pretty good time, I think. And that was a lot of really, really good games to talk about. Although, of course, we're not done yet. Um, I won't be back until 2021 for my next roundup. Uh, but... In the month of December, I'm going to be playing some new stuff. Again, hit that I. Go check out the coming soon. And uh, hopefully, there'll be some cool, exciting ones, depending on what the voters have chosen. Because I haven't actually put it up to a vote yet. i got to work on that. Everything. Oh, uh, we're running out of time. 2020 is almost over. 
thankfully, and we can all be moving forward very soon. And I think, folks, I think that's it. And as always, thank you very, very much for watching. And thanks, as always, to Fun Again Games for supply, supporting the show. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Oh, bye-bye.